1: Visit LiveNation.com slash to learn more,
0: and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club! Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast! right now I'm thrilled to introduce my guest, Dan Harris. Dan is perhaps the most unlikely meditation evangelist ever. After a panic attack on Good Morning America, he wrote the New York Times best-selling memoir, 10% Happier, about what led him to embrace a practice he'd long considered ridiculous. He then started the 10% Happier Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics app with a handful of bona fide meditation teachers, including Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. He's also the host of the 10% Happier podcast. I'm really pleased to have Dan on the podcast today and hope that you can join in the discussion by going to thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for chatting with me today, Dan.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed your article, by the way.
0: Oh, yeah, the one about how I was skeptical of mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's like this band of, now I'm part of this club that you're part of people who were skeptical of mindfulness and kind of were sold once they did it. It's not a bad club. No, it's not a bad club. Sold in the sense like we're still a little bit skeptical though,
2: right? Yeah, if you're not a little bit skeptical, I'm I'm skeptical of you.
0: Yeah, I feel the same exact way because I feel like we both probably still have this like there's still like a bit of a nonconformist gene that we have that maybe some other people don't have. But I feel like we're in this club specifically who also have that nonconformist gene
2: in us, whatever, I agree. whatever that is. I agree. I love the skepticism. But for me, I really love that you answered a lot of questions that I had that I get from people that I didn't really know how to answer about, you know, the apparent demonizing of mind wandering and daydreaming in the mindfulness world and the relationship between mindfulness and creativity and all that stuff. I just all that is just super interesting to me and you handled it very well.
0: Well, thank you so much. I wasn't planning on starting out this interview with a compliment to me. I'm like, wow, Dan Harris. Thanks, man.
2: My pleasure. You
0: made my day. Um, <laughs> so back to you now. You know, you write this phrase in your book, our mind is a fever swamp of urges, desires, and judgments. It's fixated on the past and the future to the detriment of the here and now. I thought we could start off talking a little bit about your own private swamp. I mean, of course, the infamous June 7th, 2004 incident. But also, you know, getting it like you, your personality patterns, you know, these are some things I picked from your book. Your friend Simon said you have the, quote, soul of a junkie, or you had at least the soul of a
2: junkie. I still have, still have. Yeah.
0: Your mom described you as an impatient kid. And in eighth grade, an ex-girlfriend said that you, quote, piss on the present. Wow, man. I mean, so these descriptions of you kind of do paint the portrait of someone with an attention span, maybe not optimal.
2: Yeah. Let me be clear. And I I don't recall, I'm a narcissist, but not so narcissistic that I can recall my own book, chapter and verse. But, My description of the mind that you read is pretty negative, and I stand by it. But I would also say that the mind is capable of compassion, creativity, and comedy, and lots of other great stuff. It's just that if you take an honest accounting of the voice in your head, often it is negative, repetitive, and self-referential. And in my own case, as I look at some of my own personality patterns. There are some good stuff, but that's less interesting to talk about than the bad stuff. So let's talk about the bad stuff, having cleared my throat thusly. Yeah, I mean, all of those things are true, that um, I have a tendency toward impatience, I have a tendency toward casting into the future or thinking about the past to the detriment of whatever's happening right now. And I have the soul of a junkie. I think there's a really apt diagnosis by my friend Simon that even though I no longer use drugs, uh, I still want them. And I have all sorts of new and maybe not equally destructive, but nonetheless destructive addictions I struggle a lot around food, even though I'm slim. So people get, you know, sort of frustrated when I talk about that. But there's a lot of my mental energy taken up around cookies and stupid stuff like that. And my wife sort of talks to me about not talking about this as much as I do. But because people will be frustrated because I'm a little guy. Um, But even the amount of bandwidth that gets chewed up around French fries and cookies and then self-flagellation and shame spirals and all that stuff, I guess I just use it as an example of the fact that the junkie has not been exorcised. (laughs) Although he often needs to be exorcised.
0: Well, maybe the broader point there is you're a dopamine junkie. So it's like, you know, what this means is you're a junkie for like novelty and stimulation. Yes. Of some yes. sort. Yeah, maybe we can we can generalize yeah. this. I am too. I mean I would describe I've described myself as a dope not as a jo- soul of a junkie, but a soul of a dopamine junkie. Because, you know, I, I'm ravishly curious. So the thing that's interesting though is with meditation you can still apply that to radical curiosity about your own mind, right? So you just basically just applied that soul to your own mind in a way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean you can have good sort of repetitive slash compulsive behavior. You can have healthy compulsions, I think, and you can have negative ones. I definitely have developed a sort of pretty deep meditation habit, and I think it's largely healthy. There obviously are ways to turn that into unhealthy fixation on meditation, but say, for example, if I was neglecting my family or my work, But yeah, I think a lot of my life in the years after abandoning drugs has been about finding healthier ways to redirect my search for dopamine.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you have, you've done that. I mean, you really dive deep into meditation now. But this book started five years ago, I think. That's what I gathered and inferred from reading your book is that a good five, six years ago is when you started writing the book. I mean, are you still into mindfulness as much? So what's it like for you now?
2: Okay, so I started meditating eight years ago and pretty much got the idea that I was going to write the book right after I started meditating because I was reading a bunch of books and realized that there weren't any books with any humor in them. And I thought, okay, there's room for me here. And I had never written a book before. My interest in meditation has only gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. I am, after having done 5,000 podcasts or and TV shows and radio interviews where I talk about this. I am tired of talking about myself. So I do get tired of telling my story. Yeah, because I that. Because that's not to say that you shouldn't ask me about it, because I certainly will talk about it. But that has lost a lot of its juice for me. Yeah. But what has lost no juice whatsoever is the value of the practice, uh, dealing with skeptical questions about the practice, the limits of the practice, the potential, the science, all of that stuff is incredibly interesting to me. And so I will write more books, but they will all... At least, as of right now, be about meditation.
0: Yeah, in your new book, you could start off like June twelfth, two thousand seventeen. It started everything for me when I had the podcast. That could be your new narrative. You know that. Yes, day. that's right. <laughs> no, you could that, or you could give me a panic attack. Exactly <laughs> oh, that would be interesting. Well, first of all, I fully have empathy for you. Like I wrote this book called Ungifted, where like I told my story about like being in special ed as a kid and stuff. And you know it was raw and real when I wrote it, but then after like a million talks and podcasts, now I don't even feel like it's me anymore when I tell yes, the
2: story. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean,
0: you kind of go through the emotions at a point where you're like you're telling someone else's story, even though it it is truly your story. Did something weird happen on June seventh, two thousand four, that was out of the ordinary for you? <laughs>
2: Yes. Do you want me to answer that question?
0: Yeah, you might as well. You know, okay. you we, okay.
2: you know, we got to get the story in there. But by the way, I don't want to downplay my self-centeredness. So it's entirely possible that you could ask me questions about other portions of my life that I would love to talk about. And yeah. no it's just the story that I tell in 10% Happier oh, that I'm a little tired I of talking totally about. I so totally get it. No, it's okay. because of
0: the dopamine hit. You're not getting yeah. the novelty from the story yes. anymore. No, I totally get it. Correct. No, no. I, to- I mean, I totally got that. Yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. good. So June 2004, yeah, I had a panic attack on national television on Good Morning America. My job that day was to deliver the news headlines at the top of each hour on the show. And so I would came on at seven o'clock that morning or 705 or something like that. And I was supposed to read six short stories off of the teleprompter. And then I would be done for until eight, eight o'clock. And a couple of seconds into my shtick, I just lost it. My heart started racing, my palms were sweating, my mouth dried up, my lungs seized up, I just couldn't breathe. And I had to quit right in the middle. And so it was really embarrassing, really destabilizing. And the more embarrassing story is actually what produced the panic attack, which relates back to the quote that you gave me from Simon, uh, my friend Simon. Uh, I didn't use his last name in the book, but it's Simon Hammerstein. He's actually a direct descendant of uh, Rogers and Hammerstein. Oh, he's, wow. a, he's quite a prominent nightclub impresario here in Manhattan. And I used to hang out with him back when I was a bad boy. Wow. And, can he uh, get me on the list? Yeah, he can get you on the list. Wow. Um, you know, the frustrating part for me is that he didn't become, when I was hanging out with him, he didn't have the club yet. And by the time I he started the club, which became, it's called The Box, and it's quite a famous club here in New York City. And that club opened after I quit doing drugs, and so I had no desire to go to the well. I had a lot of desire to go to the club, but I knew. Dan, anyway, let's go and meditate in the club. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could well. Simon's now a meditator, interestingly enough. So we could probably do that. So anyway, the backstory is behind the panic attack was that I had spent a lot of time hunting for dopamine in war zones as a young, idealistic, and ambitious news reporter after nine eleven, and I kind of developed an addiction to the thrill of being in a war zone and When I came home, I got depressed and didn't know I was depressed and did this incredibly stupid thing of self-medicating with recreational drugs, which made me feel better. And even though I wasn't doing drugs all the time and not when I was on the air, I learned after I had the panic attack and I went to a doctor, a shrink who's an expert in panic, he pointed out that drug use was enough to artificially raise the level of adrenaline in my brain exacerbate my baseline anxiety and produce this panic attack. So yeah, that's the story.
0: Yeah. So you knew something had to change. I mean, you were searching for something anyway at that point.
2: Yeah. I mean, we're always, you know, I think those of us who are into dopamine are always kind of searching, right? We're always on the hunt. I wish I could say, so when the doctor pointed out that I had given myself a panic attack through stupidly snorting cocaine, I was smart enough to quit doing drugs. And I was smart enough to go see this doctor once or twice a week for a year. I still see him. But I didn't find meditation until many years later. And I'm not of the view that meditation is a panacea, obviously. I call the book 10% Happier, but I don't think it cures panic disorder. I think it is uh, one arrow in the quiver for boosting overall well-being and can reduce the likelihood of panic attacks. But I think, I, so, I don't want to present this as something that is like a cure for depression, a cure for anxiety. I think it's a good tool.
0: No, absolutely. And I have a lot of empathy for the panic attacks. I used to have a lot of anxiety, I used to walk around with the beta blocker pills in case I would, oh, get, yeah. in case that would happen. I mean, there's a safeguard there. You just immediately yeah. pop the pill and then you go down yeah. to 65 heart rate. So, yeah. I, I've been there. And so, I really, all joking aside, I really, my heart goes out to you. And in that moment, when I watched that video, like my heart really goes out to you.
2: I was like, I know that feeling. You oh, know, can I say something you know, about that? Sure, part? sure. So, so first of all, thank you for saying yeah. that. But I, I, it's so interesting to hear you say what you just said. That when you watch the video, because it's on YouTube, but yeah. panic attack. Because is there such a bright line that If you have a history of panic or anxiety, then when you watch that video, you like either can't watch it or you feel really badly. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't, you think. I'm overdoing it, that I'm that I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, that it looks like I just had trouble speaking, but you can't tell it's panic attack.
0: I want to elaborate on that a second because I get it so much. And what I have found is that when I have been in that state, people really can't tell. What's fascinating to me is the mismatch between the interior feeling of what's going on and what it actually looks like on the outside. To me, that is so fascinating. I've given talks before where Right when I started, I just knew that like, I'm like, how am I going to get through this? Mm. Like my internal state is one of intense drama, but yet I've talked to people and they're like, oh, you look so calm. And in fact, not only that, but I would say there's almost a correlation between the extent to which people say I look calm and how crazy I'm going on inside. (laughs) I'm so curious what that's all about. It's almost like when I get in that state, somehow on the outside, I become so like just frozen that I appear really calm.
2: Yes. Or you're compensated.
0: Yeah, maybe I'm calm saying so much. But yeah, it's just so interesting. People are like, I'm like, did you know that I was freaking out? They're like, what? You look so calm out there. It's like, mm. what?
2: You
0: yeah. know? So that mismatch between interior and exterior is just really interesting to me.
2: I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, okay. So
0: let's move beyond 2004. You know, when you went searching all this, why didn't you do the natural thing, which is find Jesus? You know, like <laughs> I say that because you write about your experience with Ted Haggard and stuff. Like, why didn't Ted Haggard convince you that that was the thing instead of meditation?
2: Okay, so what happened after there was a kind of an interesting confluence of events, I quit doing drugs and started seeing this shrink. And around that time, I was also getting really into covering faith and spirituality for ABC News. I'm just filling in the blank for those who haven't read the book. I had been given this assignment, and I didn't want it, frankly, by my boss at the time, Peter Jennings. And so then ended up spending a lot of time with pastors like Ted Haggard and imams and disciples of the Mormon temple, um, lots of different religious folks. I was raised by scientists. I'm now married to a scientist. I have a constitutionally am kind of not able to believe in things you can't prove. So I actually don't have now having spent a lot of time with people of faith. I'm not anti-faith. I don't like divisive wings of organized religion, but I personally am not really capable of it or have not yet been capable of Faith in the way we traditionally talk about it. I, what I've developed a certain amount of around meditation is confidence that there's perhaps more to be done, and and that maybe things like enlightenment are interesting things to investigate. But I can't speak with any authority about things that I can't prove.
0: It's fair enough. Are you blood related to Sam Harris?
2: Not blood related. We sometimes refer to each other as brothers from another mother. Mm. Sam is a very Good friend and somebody I really admire. He's also quite quite controversial, uh, yeah. so some people don't like when I talk about my admiration for him. But we are good friends, and he's a really serious meditation practitioner. And um, I know, I know, yeah. So I really, I, I I've gotten a lot out of my relationship with Sam.
0: Yeah, the whole waking up idea. Well, that's interesting. You know that phrase "waking up." Um, it actually makes me think of your experience with Eckhart Tolle and how you know in his books. That he kind of like that's how he sets the stage in a lot of his books, right? It's like this book will wake you up in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah. You yeah. were skeptical of it going into it. Tell me what your experience with with the I, I don't even know how to pronounce is Eckhart. I don't want to get in trouble by this guy. <laughs> by this guy.
2: Yeah. First of all, he won't it, care, it, right? He won't no, care. he won't care.
0: I mean, he's so no. calm. He's so he's calm. really calm. This guy's unstoppable. This guy's. Did you try to flap him at all?
2: Like, I did, yeah, I did. Yeah. I actually don't think that is an act. I, I mean, I don't really know, but I mean, my spidey sense tells me that like he actually really is calm. It's Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart.
0: Eckhart. Thank you. I apologize, Eckhart. I know you're listening to this podcast. I know you love the psychology <laughs> podcast. Uh, apologize for that okay so tell me what your experience with him was like because i it's funny when i read your book i've been thinking the same like your thought patterns i'm like oh my gosh i had the same thought patterns with these people like but you've had the great experience of actually meeting them so tell me what on the inside what's it like
2: yeah i mean Eckhart totally just for those who the uninitiated he's a huge self-help guru i didn't know anything about him i never even heard of him yeah my initial response to him was of deep skepticism bordering on disgust. He writes books with kind of lofty titles like A New Earth and The Power of Now. And he makes all these grandiose claims about how he's going to give you a spiritual awakening. And he talks about how after his own spiritual awakening, he lived on park benches in the city of London for two years in a state of bliss. And he uses lots of pseudoscientific language and all this stuff. I remain critical of all of that. But what he did that I have to give him eternal credit and gratitude for is point out something that nobody else had ever pointed out to me, which is that we all have a voice in our heads by which he was not referring to and I'm not referring to schizophrenia or hearing voices or mental illness, although I guess you could describe it as a kind of mental illness on some levels. But the inner narrator, your ego, the voice that is kind of yammering at you all day long, this nonstop conversation you're having with yourself that most of us are unaware that we're even having and therefore are controlled by it. You know, it's like we're eating when we're not hungry or we're losing our temper when we don't need to. Or in my case, you know, going off to war zones without thinking about the psychological consequences, coming home, getting depressed and not knowing it and then using drugs blindly. So it's kind of this inner conversation is, is responsible for most of the things that, about which we are most embarrassed. And Eckhart Tolle was the first person to wake me up to that fact. And it had profound implications.
0: Exactly. So it could be that... Even if his language doesn't technically make sense, it still theoretically makes sense. So what I mean by that is like become aware of the inner energy field of your being. Now, I my initial gut reaction is to roll my eyes at that. However, that is meaningful when you don't
2: look at it from a scientific perspective. <laughs> no, but yes. I'm saying, but do you know yes. what you know
0: what I mean by that? Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. So it's absolutely true. I found that there are certain things that he says that don't really hold up. You picked an example that does hold up, you know, being aware of the energy field of your being. I mean, you can put that in English. Like if you sit down, close your eyes and feel what it's like to have a body, you're an animal with a body. You can feel it. It's hard to describe it, but like you can just feel it. And actually, there's value to feeling that because that is what it feels like to be alive. And tuning into that can tune out a lot of the Mishigas that is yanking you around. And so again, I don't want to turn this into some sort of blind pro Eckhart Tolle orgy, you're but to he's right like on that him. one. You're starting yeah, to, I know, start to sound like this guy. Wait, I
0: apologize. T- no, 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 no. I know where you're coming from though. It's, tell me what it was like. What is his own energy field like when you're sitting across from him? Because I'm very good at feeling people's energy. Like I can feel your energy right now. You have a great energy, by the way. And I'm not just saying that. Like you've <laughs> really got it. I can feel people's energy. You have a, like, if I were to describe your energy, it's, really i'm trying to be very careful with my words here you have a very smart but there's a bit of cheekiness which i really like you know a bit of like nonconformist conformist and a, like a tinge of insecurity as well as confidence like all in one interesting package so i i feel your energy this guy's energy like i mean what is it yeah what is it like
2: could you describe First, it? well yeah. i would just say your diagnosis is actually really i mean that sort of mixture of insecurity and confidence and like being a wise ass is Definitely, yeah. all the things that I would describe about myself. It's um, a fascinating maybe not as,
0: combination. <laughs> like I, I, I think you're a fascinating combination of those things. Yeah,
2: I'm less fascinated by yeah. it, but I would certainly say that's apt. But Eckhart Tolle is, I gotta say, I used this term before, but Spidey sense about him is that he's not full of shit. Because okay. I went into it assuming he is like a madman. And I've spent time with a lot of self-help gurus and I didn't get a real mercenary vibe off of him. I didn't get a sense that he um, was faking it. If I was going to say what his problem is, because he has this kind of, I think I use the phrase otherworldly diffidence about him, you know, like, is that like he's speaking to us from a different mindset. It is possible to me that he did have some sort of psychological slash spiritual breakthrough and that has trouble talking about it in comprehensible terms, he would say, and I think he actually does say this, that actually he knows that some of the language he uses in his books is hard to grok, but that actually he's trying to circumvent your conscious mind and speak to your subconscious.
0: Okay, so I appreciate what you just said, and I've been trying to think about that. You said to him, you know, you're like, okay, look, have you ever been upset? Have you ever been angry? He's like, no, never. You know, he's like, that's not my state. And he'll just like say these things, like, we are the universe field. And I I guarantee you, if you said to him, actually, this study says that's not true, he would not say, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to delete that Facebook, or I'm going to update my (laughs) Facebook post.
2: Yeah, there's a great quote from him. Um, I'm not going to nail it, but it's something along the lines of he's so confident in his spiritual enlightenment that if he met the Buddha and and the Buddha told him he was not enlightened, he would say, oh, that's so interesting. The Buddha can be wrong.
0: I believe he is so confident that he has seen some truth. Now, that is interesting, because throughout the course of human history, we've had people like this. We've had Jesus. Yeah. We've had so many people who had the revelatory experience, and I put that in capitals. And to their own reality, well, they are fundamentally changed, and there is something genuine about it. So again, I don't think we need to like, question whether or not it's genuine or authentic. But still, there is this... It's almost funny. It's like, I would say he's not very open so let's bring the same straight talk to your experience with Tupac Chopra no I'm sorry, Deepak <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sorry <laughs> Deepak Chopra. Okay. What's his energy like? And I actually do believe that he's a fundamental different energy. I believe they're two different beasts. I believe both of him and Eckhart are two different they're two different beasts, but both fastening in their own right. So tell me about him.
2: What was Deepak like? is totally different. You're right. He's got the energy of like a hustler. You know, not a hustler in that he's trying to pull one over you. He's hustling, you know. He's working hard. He's got lots of ideas. He's writing lots of books. He's meeting people. He's, you know, like that. I think that very shortly after I met him for the first time, he had his assistant send a bunch of books to my office, and you know, he would email and text me. You know, he's he's always on Twitter. He's really like he hustles, and you don't really get any of that off of Eckhart Tolle. And Deepak really like is likable and wants to be liked. Actually, he's he's the fun guy to hang around with. But I don't get off of him. The same kind of – he didn't – to me, just to me, this is my yeah. personal impression, I didn't get some sort of vast reservoir of imperturbability the way I did get that sense with Eckhart Tolle. But oh, what do, but do, what do, do I know? I'm just one dude. I mean like I, oh, I'm not well, – don't... don't
0: underestimate the power of your intuition. I, oh
2: my gosh. I sound like t like, <laughs>
0: like I sound like t Um, <laughs> But actually, I, look, look either of those characters, would they laugh about themselves? And I think there's a great value in that skill, the ability to laugh at yourself. I don't think Eckhart ever says, like, I am the transformational void of the infinite, and then say, yeah, I realize that does sound kind of weird. You know, like I couldn't imagine him saying that, you know?
2: Ugh. Yeah, that's true. They don't do a lot of poking fun at themselves. And, you know, I mean there may be a number of reasons for that, but you know, mm-hmm. traditionally there's been a pretty large audience of for spiritual gurus who take themselves pretty seriously. Yeah. And and I, I do realize so, I
0: run the risk of not being able to reach that level of guruishness by being
2: uh cheeky. You and me both, man. I mean I'm definitely positioning myself as somebody who will never reach that position. Yeah.
0: Cool. So I want to move away from your uh personal with the good self help guru world. And then tell me a little bit about your experience with some of these modern-day Buddha Jews.
2: Boo-Jews. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- that experience has been really positive. Yeah. There's this cabal of, and I use that in the most positive sense as possible, yeah. but there's this group of 50 and 60 and 70-something men and women, Jewish people from the New York City area who, through a variety of circumstances got into meditation in the 60s and 70s, and now are some of the most prominent teachers of meditation. And they include people like Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Mark Epstein and Jack Kornfield and John Kabat-Zinn and Danny Goldman and Richie Davidson. And well, there's also the other female name that's coming to mind, although I'm not sure she's got as much history with these folks as Tara Brock. Yeah, Tara um, Brock yeah. And then also Danny Goldman's wife, whose name is Tara Goldman. So there are some women on the scene for sure. But these folks are really interesting because they all discovered, a lot of them went to Ivy League schools, MIT, Harvard, and were in Boston in the 60s and 70s and met each other and then went off to India and learned meditation and then got into science. A lot of them got into science and they have been responsible for validating the practice through science and also teaching it. This practice had mostly been done in Eastern context to Westerners. And they, I believe, have like for sure they changed my life, finding them, and I believe may really ultimately be judged as people who had a huge impact on society. And because without these folks, we wouldn't have what we see now, which is a public health revolution around meditation. And so these people have become really close friends of mine and business partners, because Sharon yeah. and Joseph are the two primary teachers on the 10% Happier app. And actually, I'm going to a After I'm done with you, I'm going to go to a book party for Sharon for her new book, uh, which is called Real Love. I
0: love her new book, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's really good. And so these folks are just incredible and have really, really just kind of – I insinuated myself into their whole crew, and my life has been better for it.
0: So that's great. You know, I love those people you mentioned are huge influencers on me as well. So that's great. Okay, I think this is a good place to do the three-minute meditation you shared with us from your app, 10% Happier. Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. This one is called Bicep Curl for Your Brain, building off a common philosophy that Dan shares, which is that meditation is like going to the gym for your mind. To access more meditations from Dan and some of the world's best meditation teachers, check out the 10% Happier app in the Apple Store or at 10percenthappier.com. Okay, here's the three-minute meditation with Dan.
2: Hey, it's Dan. I am not a meditation teacher, so this is like flying on a plane with a pilot who slept at a Holiday Inn last night. So buckle up. Here we go. Really only three steps here. First is sit comfortably, close your eyes. Second is to bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. You don't have to think about your breath. Just feel the raw data of the physical sensations. Third step this is the biggie. As soon as you try to do this, pay attention to one thing at a time, your mind will go nuts. Who invented the sneeze guard? What's the definition of if? Who was Casper the Friendly Ghost before he died? totally fine, you're not alone in this, this is the way everybody's mind works. The whole game is just to notice when your mind's going nuts and go back to the breath, start again. Pick a spot wherever it's most prominent, your chest, your belly, your nose. Feel your breath coming in and going out, feeling the rising of your belly, the cool sensations of the air going in your nostrils and then out. Did you get distracted again? Totally fine. Happens to me all the time. Happens to everybody. The whole game is just to notice when you've gotten lost and start over. As I like to say, it's a bicep curl for your brain. This is what shows up on the brain scans. Back to the breath. It's happening without you doing anything about it. Isn't that interesting? Back to the breath okay you're done open your eyes carry on with your day come back soon so moving on from
0: that to the app and then your own meditation practice i mean tell me about this retreat that you were engaged in and then like now how much do you meditate
2: yeah, so I, in the book, I talk about this 10-day silent meditation retreat that I went on. And I'm often hesitant to bring it up because I feel like I sense a lot of people are just looking for excuses not to meditate. And when they hear that I went on a 10-day silent meditation retreat, they're going to have the following, what's the word, concatenated series of thoughts, which is like, I would never do that. I, therefore, am never going to meditate. See ya. And I just want to be clear. I decided you don't have to go on a 10-day meditation retreat if you're interested in meditation. I was writing a book and I needed some shit to write about. So I thought it would be a good idea to go on a retreat. And it ended up giving me a lot of good stuff to write about because it was miserable for the first four, three or four or five days. Totally, totally miserable. But then it was amazing. And I really got a kind of, a I had an experience of my own mind that was different than I'd ever had before, where I really got a sense of what it's like when our discursive thought patterns kind of slow down and we're really having a much more potent experience of being alive right now, and that was accompanied with a huge blast of serotonin. I had about thirty-six of the most of the happiest hours of my life, and then, like everything, it faded, and I went back to being miserable, and then happy again. And so, that's the first part of your question. The second part of my your question is, what's my meditation like now? So, I've continued to go on retreats. My teacher Joseph Goldstein would argue I don't do it enough, but probably every other year, and get a lot about out of it. And I, my daily practice is now up to, I'm doing about two hours a day. So I'm really gotten into it. And I, again, I believe that five to 10 minutes is enough really to derive benefits. In fact, I think one minute, we're in the process of redesigning big chunks of our app around the idea that one minute counts. And I really believe that. But I personally have gotten enough out of it and continue to get enough out of it and have enough curiosity that I have upped my daily dosage to two hours.
0: Okay, I have a a very important question for you, Dan. Are you ready for this question? I'm braced. Are you afraid that your career is washed up?
2: Always. Seriously. I worry about that all the time. So I talk a, this is a huge theme in my book and continues to be a huge theme in my life, which is this professional advancement and ambition and how much and the balance between having that kind of ambition and being happy and sane. And it's not one that I've mastered. I mean, I do my best and I think I'm better at it than I used to be. And I'm less prone to letting my professional anxieties seep out into the rest of my life, although I still do that. Somebody asked me recently if I could sum up what the benefits of meditation are for me. And I I actually think it really does come down to being less of an asshole. Mm. And you know, I mean, that sounds cheeky on some levels, but actually, there's a lot there to unpack. And Mm -hmm. I think you progressively become less of an asshole to yourself and others. So yeah, I do worry about the state of my career and balancing that with the state of my kind of meditation career. And you know, what is this thing? And you know, I now I'm a small businessman. and, And I'm writing more books about this. And but yet, I'm also a newsman. And So, yeah, there's a lot there for me to worry about. I think I'm better at drawing the line between useless rumination and what I call constructive anguish.
0: Wow, man. Thank you so much for, like, vulnerably and honestly answering. I mean, I I asked that question probably as a joke because you asked Paris Hilton that question. Oh, I didn't
2: even put that together.
0: And you didn't even make that connection, and you actually (laughs) took it seriously. So, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, like, big ups, as they say. Big ups. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's exactly the same question you asked, Parasultan. Okay. So, you know, I'm thinking about this field that you work in and how it can be compatible having that loving kindness and work in such a competitive field. I mean, you need to scoop, you know, NBC, you know, or like, I mean, it's by nature a very competitive field. And also you have these questions like, do you give, you know, regarding the Parasultan thing, like, do you take an extra second now when you think about asking someone a question that might not be a compassionate question? Like, do you pause an extra second now? How have you changed in that regard?
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I do pause a little bit. I think a little bit more about how would I feel being on the receiving end of that? How would I, and when I'm writing stories about how I'm portraying people. And yeah, absolutely. The great Sharon Salzberg, who's been referenced in this podcast interview previously, but I'm going to invoke her name yet again, has a great expression that you can compete without being cool. And I think that's true, that I am in competition with other news networks even other correspondents and anchors within my own organization. And I think that you can be competitive without wishing ill on others. And then if you do find yourself reflexively kind of rooting for the failure of others, just being aware that that's happening, and then not feeding it through compulsive thought. So I think it's just all an interesting dance.
0: I love that. So I want to ask a final question. It's something I've been thinking about why did you call the book 10% happier instead of 10% more aware?
2: Catchiness. You know, I, I'm actually working on a follow-up book that is more practical, It's like a companion book on some levels. It's called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and it's really about helping people get over the hump and actually do this thing. Mm-hmm. And I have a co-author who's a meditation teacher who's this amazing guy named Jeff Warren. and you know, I use the term happiness quite a bit. And he's kind of on my ass about it. He's like, you know, what does happiness even mean? Why can't you just use well being? And my answer is, you know, you're right, that there are better words, but those aren't the words that actual human beings use. And they use happiness. And I'm a, you know, I'm a huge part of my way of being in the world, at least publicly is got a P.T. Barnum vibe to it. And I'm about getting people in the door, like get them in the door with a title like 10% Happier. That's not unethical. I wouldn't do something unethical to get them in the door, I don't think. But then really give them a full explanation once they're in. So for me, 10% Happier just struck me as something like, oh, I guess I was hoping that people walking by the book in an airport would Mm -hmm. be like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I'll buy that book. That's what I was thinking.
0: Awesome, and then when you get them in the door, then you explain to them that meditation is a lot, so much more than just happiness.
2: Right? Yeah, then yeah. you can hit them with some dharma, you know, if you, which is really my thing. You know, I'm a yeah. Buddhist, um, yeah, but not a Buddhist in the sense that I'm religious, but a Buddhist in the sense that I do Buddhist meditation, and I think that it's, uh, you know, really not something to believe in; it's something to do, and uh, that it can. It was invented by a genius or a whole series of geniuses who. We, you know, just came up with these little training exercises that make you less of an asshole.
0: Dan, thank you so much for this chat today. I'm gonna get tell everyone about your app. I'm gonna, all my students in my positive psychology class, I'm gonna like make them as a requirement for my <laughs> course sign up, you know, so they can. Uh, I think students all across this country really need more mindfulness. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, being such a great sport.
2: Great questions, man. I really it was a purely enjoyable. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking as I did. If something you heard today stimulated you in some way, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com.